This year sees the 20th anniversary of the publication of Jim Collins' bestseller, Good to Great, why some companies make the leap and others don't. With over 4 million copies sold worldwide, Good to Great became a management must read. But what can we learn from it 20 years on? Is it still relevant? Do its findings pan out in the 21st century? Helping me discuss Good to Great in my virtual studio today are Dr. Katrin Winkler, Leadership and Motivational Coach and Professor of Human Resources and Leadership at the University of Applied Sciences in Kempton, Germany. Kor Lortz, Business Strategist, former Vice President in Business Improvement and Operations for Levi Strauss Europe and owner of Caballo Consultancy. Philip van Harden, Business Consultant and former CEO of Unicorn Solutions NV and member of a number of boards of directors. And lastly, Peter Ryman, partner of the Bayard Partnership. Peter has been described as a no-nonsense guy that sees the bigger picture immediately. For his day job, he's a project manager with a degree in enterprise architecture. Welcome all. I would like to start with you, Cor, and can you set the scene for us? What was your world like when Good to Great was first published way back in October 2001? Well, I didn't read a book in, in 2001. I think I read the book in 2003. The CEO of our company at that time, Phil Marino, who just came from PepsiCo to Levi's. And the company in that moment in time had a 260 million debt a year that they had to pay uh, pay down for a two billion loan and at that moment he provided that book to all the leaders of the company because levi's had to become rigorously second sabine's oxley compliant and we had to reduce the cost enormously over that uh, time my task at that moment was to outsource all the distribution and logistics at the same time implemented the erp system in in europe and on top of that, we got a mass channel part of our business included. That was business like Carrefour, Metro Macro, and that was really a logistical nightmare. So I remember that time is that we had to be extremely rigorous in the way that we acted. And did you believe at that time that there, that Levi's could become a great company following the concepts of the book, i.e. Return, a return on investment exceeding the market? Were you all buoyant and confident at that stage? Well, I must say the, the book didn't make that much of a difference. I mean, the, the essence of the book was really look where you're great at. Make sure that you're energize yourself to enormous discipline and that you're... Okay, we'll come back to that in a minute, Cor, because that's kind of the core of the book. I just want to come to you, Philip. What was the world like for you in 2001? And what was the context for you when the book was first published? Well, in 2001, we just came out of the, the millennium... Uh, hype, I would call it, where uh, all the world was going to uh, fall apart uh, with the millennium bug. 
Basically, it was a period in, in IT where the priorities were resettled, I would say, to business development, to support the business and, and all these type of things. Uh, so it was uh, also a time where I think a lot of IT departments uh, needed to reinvent themselves a little bit in order to better support the business, getting implementations of, for example, new ERP systems fully on track. But can you remember uh, so specifically, on. can you remember specifically sort of like getting that book? What was the context? Was it given to you? I mean, Core received it as a gift uh, from mm. his from his boss saying, I think it was a gift. Please read this. Um, but what, how, what was the context for you? Well, it was a little bit the same. Eh? We, the IT management got it from our CFO. In order also to get, yeah, one of the big things was to get focus. Eh? Uh, yeah. So in order to get focus on, yeah, what are we good in? What should we improve? How should we develop our organization? Uh, do we have the right organization uh, at this point in time in order to get... So uh, it was basically a lot of open questions that we were kind of hoping that this book may even address. Thank you, Philip. Catherine, tell me, I don't think you were in business at that time. It's an indelicate thing to say, but uh, I have a feeling that you were still studying or something. When did you come across the book and what was your connection with this book? I was not in business yet. Uh, I was actually writing my PhD thesis on the topic of communities and I did not come across the book at that very moment, but I did a couple of years later when I was working in an organization and we were discussing culture change and one of the coaches we were working with suggested that we focus on the book and reflect on what we can learn from it um, to actually change the culture in the organization. So it was probably a belated start into the entire um, story of the book. Yeah okay that's interesting. Peter had you read the book before I invited you onto this panel? I mean was it part of your life because I know that you would have been about 20 or something like that when that book yeah, was well, first published. I was still in school Harley so <laughs> <laughs> I hadn't read the book before so I started reading it when you asked me to join the podcast. It was still an interesting read but for me it was way before I started working. No. Okay. Well, we're going to really look to both y you and Catherine for the relevance of this thing now and how it could be used or abused in today's world. I mean, I'm going to share a secret with our audience that uh, Philip and Cor and myself and indeed Jim Collins are all of a, should we say, a similar generation. So that book came out when we were peaking in our careers, if you like, I can imagine. Maybe, maybe we still are. Who knows? But the context was very different from us. It was a new thing and it was published that this might give us the secret to, to change the, the, the future of our businesses. So let's move on. Peter, you've just read the book. What do you think has changed from the world that you saw in that book, would you say? I think not a lot has changed. As mentioned in the book, changes were already around during that period. Maybe the pace of change has increased, but we're not really sure that, that this is the case. However, I think that there are some things that companies now need to consider. I think one of them is sustainability. In that period, sustainability was not really that big of a topic as it is now. For the past 10 years, companies needed to focus a lot more on being environmentally cautious and they needed to respond to their financial requirements. So I think that is a big change for companies, the sustainability part, and I think also the complexity. I think 21st century information systems have become more important for most organizations, 
and there became vital for their efficiency to respond to new market challenges. Well, I'm going to I'm going to challenge that, you know, because uh, core. Do you think that's true? Because you, you you've seen the logistics world. Do you think it is more complex today? Because everybody says it's more complex and and faster and everything. What's your view? I don't think it's more complex. I think there is more ability to use data compared to what we use data 20, 40 years ago. I mean, mass data is now so uh, in reach of a lot of companies that you can measure and benchmark yourself much easier than 20, 30 years ago. Don't forget that um, when we read the book, we were also coming into a era of Europe was involving borders were not there anymore so we needed ERP systems in order to get all those borders opened for our trade right okay so that is not happening today anymore because everybody know it but mm -hmm. now when the problem uh, happened on Brexit everybody was thinking about oh what is happening with all those rule settings yeah well, tell me about it I've got products stuck in customs at the moment trying to get into the country yeah well I mean, 30 years ago, 20, 30 years ago, all the products were stuck at the border because every country had a border. So we came from that complexity into a less complex world. Now, what is happening right now, the complex world is becoming global. Okay. So and Peter, did, can you follow Core's line of thinking here? Yes, I think that's a fair point that indeed they had border control, they had problems get with customs and so on. But I think the scale of the systems and the complexity of the systems serving these these organizations were way more simpler than what we see today. You mean the technology, the systems? Not, not only the technology, but also the organization itself is, is, I think, being a global world, a lot bigger, a lot more complex, a lot more things to manage than well, there were. At the time okay, the I'm going to pick up on that and we're going to move forward because, Katrin, what do you think's changed since then in that reality? Is there still some relevance in it? Because I think we ought to get to our listeners to the core of the book. What is the book basically saying in this context? Actually, when I read the book again, I couldn't find anything that wasn't relevant. I would actually say it's more relevant today than it probably was then. Can you but, give me yeah. an example? Uh, uh, one of the things is that um, it mentions it's about the people and it's about the right people. And yes, in a globalized world, we can choose from, of course, also the global workforce, which is wonderful, but we also have to find the right people first before you move actually into actions and towards a vision. And that was something that I really thought a lot about because I'm just reworking my institute on digital learning in, into an institute on digital transformation. And, and when I thought about it, that's exactly what I'm doing right now. I'm trying to find the people, the right people first, but a very diverse team. And then uh, the other day, somebody asked me, yeah, but we need to discuss the vision and what we focus on. And I actually said, well, no, let's build the team first of a very diverse and well, engaged group. If you're taking that element of it, he was proposing that, you know, good is the enemy of great. Is that what you would advise your CEOs, Catherine? Is that what you, from, from your professor background? The trouble of being already good, and it's wonderful to be good, okay? I'm not saying that's, that's not good, but the trouble is that once you're good and you're doing things well, 
you dive into a comfort zone and then you feel comfortable and you have your little garden and everything is wonderful. And the need for change is just not so explicitly there. So we actually get complacent. And I think that's the problem we have to move from good to great, to overcome. Um, okay, overcoming complacency. Philip, you've had a very interesting and varied career, um, largely in, with a CIO kind of, should we say, technical direction. Can you see that? The businesses that you're in probably were doing quite well, but they were coasting, that they became sort of too much in their comfort zone. Do you think that's fair? Yeah, I think that's fair. And I think that's uh, yeah, a big risk for every company. Eh? If you look, let's say, to uh, the period where the book was written, eh, which were at that time very successful companies, uh, might not exist anymore today. And companies which were not existing uh, at that time, for example, if you take the Teslas, eh, the Amazons, the Alibabas, are extremely big and successful companies at this point. So I think it is a matter to yeah, continuously reinvent yourself and question that the things which you are doing today, are they still relevant tomorrow? How is the world changing? How is business changing? And, and yeah, it, you need to evolve continuously. Thank you very much indeed, Philip. It's a very good point. So, Peter, I'm coming back to you. What would you like to add? I agree with Catherine and Philippe that, indeed, once you're really good, it is easy to stay in this position and not, not going for great. But do you think that's what's actually happening in your experience today? I think, and it comes back to the people area, if, if you have the right people, they do not really settle. They always will find a new challenge to, to explore. Okay, interesting. So, Cor, picking up on Katrin's theme, do you think that is the crucial element? Well, first of all, people create the product. So <laughs> I think that the people are always the most important aspect of an entire company. And the more you represent the world in your company, the better you can understand which kind of product and how to lead it. Think about when you joined me during the change management of, of Levi's, my, my department at that moment. What was interesting is that they were representing almost every country in Europe as well as America. So we didn't have only Dutch people like me or we had the Belgian people or French people. No, we had all kinds of cultures. And then if you have all those kinds of cultures, people cannot hide behind a way of that's normal for us they have to challenge each other so i believe ultimately in cultural diversity and cultural diversity to lead the world and to lead great companies because a great company nowadays is a global company and if you're a global company you have to understand what's happening in asia you have to understand what happens in africa but you also need to understand what happens in berlin brussels or paris and the only way to do that is to have people in your company that have experience with it, because they're going to tell you on that moment in time when you're getting in line or out of line. And I think that is ultimately uh, important. I find that very, very interesting, actually, because it, in our previous podcast, we, we were talking about diversity. And I think Therese was picking up on that. You, you need to have people in your own company who reflect your customers. And what I found is interesting about your point and why I, I referred back to you, Cor, on this is because if I look at the Levi's in, in a simplistic view, you have a typically in your mind, you have a pair of jeans. And that's been going, I don't know, since 1879 or, or a, a long time. So you can say, look, in this situation, what would make Levi's great today? And you can say, well, let's just keep the product as it is. Let's freeze it for the moment, just for this conversation. 
could we dramatically improve the performance of the business just by having great people in a great team and freezing the product? Because it's quite unusual. This product doesn't have to evolve like a, a smartphone, for example. Mm, I'm, I'm not sure. I mean, first of all, if I look at the four of you, who is the one who never were Levi's before? Well, everybody did probably, right? So the, the issue becomes in uh, on tomorrow, who will wear Levi's? And you can see that it's always going up and down. So what you have to create is the people desire to get the jeans or get the t-shirt or get the, the sweatshirt. In order to do that, you have to get into the people, into their habits, and you have almost have to change their habits. If you look at today, what is the real difference of today? Today, it's not the MTV who is influencing the dynamics of purchasing that are the influencer, right? Yeah. I remember this story and you probably don't like the story, but when we were selling Levi's, what did we did? We gave our jeans to the opinion leader at schools, right? So that opinion leader at school was wearing Levi's and everybody was looking at that opinion leader and was then buying Levi's. What's the difference between that opinion leader and today's influencer? Yeah, indeed, the, the TikTok generation. The difference is the dynamics of getting engaged into a huge public. So yeah. I think the issue right now is how do you influence people to procure your service or product? Because there are only two elements of business. And I think that is becoming more and more relevant. Oh, and in order to do that, you have to influence cultures. So this culture, this connection with your public is absolutely key to you. It's also, I leave ice is a pretty successful story in terms of, of lasting for a long time. Do you think, Catherine, that Built to Last is relevant in, the, in this story? Does, does a company need to last? Well, I rather see companies as evolving. And, you know, over time, they start new product lines. They maybe even start to find out new core business elements that they are really, really successful in. So it's not like one company shuts down and the other starts, but just an evolving process over time. But the important thing is that you actually find the right point when you need to move into the next cycle um, of development of the organization. And that again, needs people who see the future and are willing to step outside of their comfort zone and go beyond the normal, even though things are working well currently. Thank you, Katrin. Philip, I'd like to switch to you because one of the things that struck me, is it's actually the result of a survey, a research project, if you like, was the measurement that these companies were consistently performing. I think it was five times the market average on the stock market. Do you think that is still a relevant criteria? I think partially. Um, I think performing, uh, let's say financially performing, yes. Eh? I mean, uh, a good or a great company uh, probably needs to perform better than its competitors or better than the market. Now, of course, in the stock market, there is a part uh, which is emotion and a part is long-term outlook or value eh, for a company. So from that perspective, of course, people need to understand why this company is better than the competitor, for example, and what will happen in the future with that company and why the, the strategy that company has is better than the, the, the strategy that its competitors have, for example. Uh, so it is some kind of a measurement, but it is a measurement uh, seen from the outside, I would say, more than from the inside. Uh, 
rewards for a company performing well from the outside world. Okay, Peter, I know that some of your experiences with companies have been working with so like with the emergency services and, and critical processes, do you think it's still relevant to measure companies in terms of financial results? As we look at Pfizer, what they have done the past year, they were the first to develop a vaccine. They are the only one that can supply the markets as promised, and yet they are not really rewarded on the stock exchange. So I think that great people, because clearly Pfizer has some great people, they are able to do what they want, still doesn't really measure the company anymore. I think that there is a lot of outside thinking that doesn't really reflect the value of a company and their people anymore. Things no. are playing part in, in the value of a company at, at this moment, rather than having the right people and being able to do as you promised. For example, what, what other criteria would we, if you were rewriting the book today, what other criteria would well, you might bring in? I wouldn't rewrite the book because I really agree with the book. I just say that, that the value doesn't really always reflect the state of the company. Catherine, do you want to pick up on that? I would agree with Peter, maybe it's not just the value of the company, but what we also need to consider is that we need to retain talent. We were talking about having great people on the team, but the value of the company, if we say this is really important in the future, we need to make sure we retain them and not just short term, but long term. And we've seen in the past couple of years that people like to jump from one to job to the next and you know, they just play around with different jobs and that costs a lot of money for the companies um, finding new people and then training them and getting them on board. And it also, um, if you don't retain people, it's also a problem for your culture because the people are the culture and create the culture. So if they go off to other companies, it can create a problem. So maybe also putting that uh, or making sure that you take that into account could also be a value that we can consider in the future. So we could be somehow trying to create some kind of index on culture. Well, Cor, obviously you were talking about culture earlier and, and that the customers of Levi Strauss are very diverse and therefore the team of Levi Strauss needs to reflect that. Is that somehow you could measure that? Because we were actually coming back to the kind of measuring on the cultural diversity within a business then. Would that, would that be a relevant measure for a great company? Well, I don't know if it's a measure for a great company. It is something that you can establish because, I mean, if you have a diverse workforce, you get diverse input. That was more or less what I'm saying, right? And if you have a diverse input, you can cre create bigger and creative things. I mean, if I, if I last to listen to Catherine, she says, well, you have to retain people. I agree you have to retain people, but you also have to refresh people. I mean, I remember that one of the disadvantages of Levi's was it was a lifetime employee for a lot of us. And that made us almost complacent. So we didn't get new input. So I would say you have to get an influx and you have to get rid of people as well. But I mean, to, to create that, that balance, you need to measure it. I'm going to pick up on that and we're going to move forward because Katrin, what are the key messages that we can get from the book? about leadership itself, would you say? Um, well, basically the uh, key thing is that, and, and I like that very much, um, that they uh, focus on humility in leadership. And I actually remember when I started to work at the university, I was preparing one of my first uh, talks about leadership. I used that example of humility and everybody looked at me like, 
humility and leadership, um, how, how come there is a connection? And it's difficult to explain to people that it's all about, it's not about yourself, but it's about others and um, the, bringing the organization forward. But a lot of times in organizations, what we see is more egocentric, narcissistic leaders, um, where it's all about them and not about the rest. So I still find that very, very important. Yet it is a difficult concept to talk about just from the wording, uh, but it is relevant. Okay, that's, that's great. Philip, what's your view? Philip, do you have anything to add on that? Because it was a key point of the book, wasn't it? I remember this humility yeah. thing. And it was kind of ironic, bearing in mind the people who are handing it out to their teams often. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Well, I think if you take um, Tesla eh, as an example, eh, we can probably say that they have a charismatic leader. Eh? Yeah. But uh, I'm not sure that he's, uh, let's say, a leader, a great leader let's say, in the in, in the definition, which is in the book uh, from uh, Jim Collins. Eh? Yeah. So Tesla is at this point, I think, a successful company. But in another context than the discussions we had before on successful or great companies, eh? I, I'm not sure that they ever made money, uh, uh, for example, uh, Tesla. Eh? So they're purely driven by... Uh, yeah, they're uh, not on our list. They're, they're purely driven by visionary, by vision, by future, by so delivering something like eh, the Tesla cars for example, but then the key question comes, is this sustainability or not? Eh? In the yeah, sense that- I, mean, I want to cut in there because I think you've, you've developed a very interesting point. And, and I want to cut to you, Peter, because if we look at what Philip is developing here, he's saying that if we look at Tesla, for example, probably never made money. So it's not on our 2021 good to great list yet. Sorry, it's not there, but it's groundbreaking. It's doing things which people have never done before. It's collecting data on people and processing that data in a way that we would never have imagined before. And maybe it will pave the way for another company to become truly great in terms of the criteria in Jim Collins's book. Do you think that's relevant? Because you were saying we don't need always that criteria of money. Could in your version of the 2021 book, and I know you don't want to rewrite the book, but I think you should, in your version of the new book, will Tesla be a great company or will it be a good company or will it be a, a not so good company? If you purely look at value, probably Tesla is a risk. But on the other hand, if you see the things that they have achieved in, let's say, the last 10 years, they really made a difference in, in new products new technology that came about and the only way that i think that they were able to do that and i know it, it's a very charismatic leader but he has the right people he has dealt with effects so and, and he really has a, always set a purpose of what he wants to achieve so i think that in the definition of the book tesla should be a great company or should could become a great company okay cool tesla good or great in the context of jim collins's book in the context of Jim Collins' book, it's not great because of his financial uh, situation, but it's a great company in my life because I think uh, it's, it's about precedence. It's, it's like Kennedy. Kennedy said, we go to the moon. I mean, they lost billions of dollars by going to the moon. But everything what happened after was a creation that created economies of scale. Yes. And this will be exactly the same thing with Tesla. Without Tesla, Volkswagen wouldn't survive, as an example, with their, uh, their new cars. I mean, they're, they're putting definitions out that we never saw before. 
And I think we need those kind of people. If we look at uh, Amazon, he's now probably the, the richest person. He lost 20 years of not making any profit. And then, boom, he went sky high. Wait, Tesla, another 10 years. Okay. Look at Apple, another great company. Didn't yeah, make it. Okay. And years, years later, they created, and everybody wants to be part of having an iPhone or having a Mac or whatever. Maybe that's part of the story, Katrin, that you need these charismatic people or brilliant or geniuses who are their own particular characteristics to get these companies started. Because let's also be fair, in Jim's book, a lot of the companies weren't great and then they became great. And he was looking at what happened to them in between. So do we need charismatic leaders to get the company started and moving in the momentum? And then we need a... A, a humble CEO to take over and she will then just slowly or gently guide it into greatness economically? Well, that's a very difficult question. I think what you're referring to are two things. First of all, it's wonderful to have someone who's highly innovative and an entrepreneur. And if it comes with a lot of discipline, which is also an element that they um, push on in the book, and that we can def definitely also see in the Tesla context. And that is very important. And then if they naturally bring charisma to the table, boom, you have really a very interesting scenario in terms of a leader. If they are then clever enough to build a team of leaders along with them who actually are focusing on the people, they can really be great. To have some sort of a balance and not all this egocentric um, element towards everybody, but it, it, it can work in the right combination. I would question if it works just um, with them as a leader. It can work short term yeah. to make things happen or to come up with an innovative and great, great idea. I, I don't see it in the long term and it's probably not sustainable. Well, thank you very much. And I think that's a, a, a nice way to sort of round it. So just as a closer, we've all read the book. We've even explored it and developed it in our own careers or whatever. Do you think, Philip, that this book made a difference? Do you think it was, if it hadn't been published, anything would have been different at all? I think it made a difference for a lot of companies. Eh? I think companies, by getting their leaders to read it and to work with the book, uh, made probably for some companies the difference that they were more focusing, that they were more focusing on, on developing their organizations, their leadership styles, um, cultivating a culture in the company as such. Eh? But I don't think it changed the world. Thank you very much, Philip. Cool. A game changer, this book? No, I don't think it's game change. It was a little bit an eye opener and awareness of what people deep inside themselves already knew. I mean, you can only become great if you know where you're great at, what you want to do, and then see the path to it. It implicitly says good to great. It says well, you already have to be a good company to become great. Right? Yeah, yeah. It doesn't yeah. say how to become a company. Yeah. And and I believe that uh, what Katrin is saying about leadership, she's absolutely right. Would you work for a leader that has the ability to let you learn as well? Because that is about humble leadership. I mean, asking the right questions and doing it. And that's fantastic to work for those people and you learn from those people. But those people do not create companies. No, no. Indeed, that's very interesting. And, and, and so from, from that humble thing, from good to great, absolutely. From becoming 
a company, you sometimes need a different kind of, of leader. And that's, that leader can become it as well, but it's a different type. That's a very that's nice point. Belief. Very nice point. Thank you, Cor. Uh, Peter, just coming back to you, you've just recently read this book. Is there anything in this book are you, that will change the way you behave in your daily behavior or influence the, the people or your team around you? That's a difficult question. I did reflect on, on the projects that, that I did based on, on this book. And, and I noticed that if you had the right people, you had to deal with effects, you, you worked with purpose, you had the right technology. Those projects, in my case, were way more successful than others. And even if you had to handle very difficult challenges, if you have those right people on your bus, it, it seems all very easy to deal with. And I thought you. this was an interesting thought. Okay, thank you. And lastly, Katrin, before we say goodbye, was this book a game changer for you? Did it uh, influence your thesis or do your, do your students benefit somehow from this? I definitely think it changed uh, a lot the way I thought about leadership or the focus I had when designing leadership concepts around the topic of humility and this also led to the focus on transformational leadership in uh, my book on connectedness. So uh, yes, I think it's, uh, it's a game changer for me in a lot of ways. Well, thank you very much indeed. Thank you very much, Philip. Thank you very much indeed. Uh, Cor, thank you very much indeed. Peter, thank you very much indeed. Catherine, I, I think we've covered our book. I wonder if it will be on sale on our bookshelves in, in, in another 20 years. Thank you very much and have a good day. Bye. Thank you. Bye-bye. Thank you. Goodbye. Goodbye. There now follows some bonus material that was not included in the original podcast recording. Enjoy. So, what did we not cover? What did we miss out? What should we have developed further? Well, one thing that I was missing a little bit is like the principle of good to great is to be to understand where you're good at, to make rigorously measure what you need to, need to do, and then together find a path for the future, right? I mean, the, the Hatch uh, sure. Sure. concept was not really explained what, what, it, what it meant. I think that should a little bit be part of it because that's the critical part of the book. Would you like to expand on that a bit further then, Cole? Well, I mean, if, if you look at the concept, I mean, you all know from what, what you need to choose is uh, right leadership, right people, right measurement, rigorously accepted into the company what you need to do. Right. That is the concept. Yeah. Yeah. OK. Um, I go a little bit further into that concept because it also is about the passion element. Basically, as Chris said, it's all about finding the strategic focus based on what you're really great at and what you can develop further. And that comes with a lot of passion. And at the same time, um, it's about making sure that you still have the money in the bank. You know, you, you know where your money comes from. And in that triangle, I think that is very powerful. And when we talk to, to leaders around the world and we choose leaders, one of the key elements is passion. Are they passionate about what they do yeah. and how they drive the business? So I, I think it's really, really uh, an important element. Thank you. Thank you very much indeed. Succinctly put, uh, Peter, what could we have covered? What did we miss out? Oh, I've noticed 
special points to, to mention. I no. think indeed the hedgehog could be more more explained. And indeed, it, our hedgehog drives yes, the, the three circles overlapping. Yeah, and it's indeed the passion that, that that's been missed. Indeed, it's, it's a very important part in, in in having the right people. If they're not passionate of what they're doing, they will not do it very well. Is my experience. Yeah, indeed. And Philip, anything we missed out? I think we mentioned, let's say, the, the most important points. I think the <laughs> organization, uh, the, okay, the Hitchcock uh, uh, as such. Um, yeah, and just to be clear, yeah. I mean, the hedgehog concept is basically these three overlapping circles. Mm. You know, what lights your fire, the passion, what could you be the best at in the world, as Katrin said, mm. and what makes money driving those resources. Yeah. That was yeah. that, that key central yeah. element, wasn't it? Yeah. 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 There's one thing I was just thinking about when you think about some of the wording of the book and, and words are powerful, right? Yeah. Um, using things like discipline or humility. I mean, those words in today's world, everybody, I, I, can, I can see it with my students, everybody's like, discipline, oh my God, that has a negative connotation. Yeah. Humility has a sort of interesting connotation. So I just find it interesting that he used those words because they, they are quite powerful and maybe we need to translate them a little bit differently to actually resonate with today's students or um, youngsters. That's a lovely point, uh, Katrina, the discipline. I'm just going to pick up on that and I'll go to, to core. Uh, I mean, that's interesting what you say there, because obviously in my trainings on change management and managing change, the first thing I'm saying is discipline right down to the to the minute and second in, in times of major change, discipline in meetings, discipline and focus and all of those things is absolutely vital because I think that discipline creates great works of art. It creates just innovation. So anyway, I, I can see you, uh, Cor, uh, with your hand waving there. What's <laughs> your, how do you want to develop this further? Well, I think discipline is important, but I think the most important thing of all is the passion. Because, I mean, without passion, you cannot drive people, right? So, I mean, the concept like best, be economic, be passion, but passion is the driver. Right? Yeah. And, and passion brings over energy to people, energy to achieve, energy to accomplish. And that passion, I think in the book, was not used that well. No, indeed. And I think uh, much later, and certainly in, in the later part of my career, because people say, oh, passion, passion, passion. It's like, have, oh, have fun at work, you know, and all this stuff. Yeah, but, but then they said, how? It's you not know, how, how do you get your team passionate? And in my view, you give them a cause. You give them a reason to come to work. You give them a vision of the future. You see, you connect them with that vision and say, look, you may be cleaning the meeting room, but when this room is cleaned and it's in beautiful condition, it's, it's, when interesting. it's interesting what Philippe was saying. He said, no book changed the world, right? Well, two books changed the world dramatically, the Bible and the Quran. Yeah, right? yeah, yeah. And the, the, the thing is that passion is, you, you follow people with passion. Why? Because they believe in something. So it's the yeah. energy that drives it. And then what comes after is the rest. I mean, yeah, yeah, indeed, I, indeed. And I, I think can, you cannot follow anybody at all without passion or energy. No, I totally agree. And I, but I think the difference for, for me, in my experience is, and I'm sure you, you will be aligned with this, that you have this vision, you have this idea of what it will be, this and the culture, the things that we're talking about, the vision for the company, where the company's going, a sense of direction, a sense of purpose. 
and that everybody who's working in that, even the external companies supplying in, mm -hmm. somehow understand how they connect to that vision, to that sense of purpose. So I might only be putting a, a screw into the side of this metal bracket, but if I do this well, it will make sure that the product lasts longer and is better and is good. And I'm actually contributing to the whole. And I found certainly in the early 2000s, especially after the, should we say, the IT crash, a lot of people lost their sense of purpose. They lost their connectedness, to quote the title of your book, Catherine, to give you a free plug there. They lost that connectedness and somehow things fell apart a bit. I see that my virtual coffee person's coming in to offer you all a virtual cup of coffee and a biscuit. Catherine, a it's last been one. wonderful and inspiring to have this chat with you guys. We need to do that more often. You're always welcome to my virtual studio. Thank you very much again, Cor. Thank you very much again, Philip. Thank you very much again, Peter. Thank you very much, Catherine. And until the next podcast, thank you very much for listening. Bye-bye. Have a great week. Bye. Bye-bye. Bye. That was a really good bye-bye, by the way. I can use that one. <laughs> Thanks a lot, guys. It's great. This podcast was made possible thanks to the Biob Partnerships Academy programme. It was presented by me, Harley Lovegrove. The music was taken from a live recording of Mozart's First Symphony, given by the Lucker Chamber Orchestra, conducted by Michel Tilcan. It was recorded as part of the Young Belgian Talent Initiative, of which the Biob Partnership is proud to present itself as a platinum sponsor. You can find the full video of the concert on YouTube. Just search for Young Belgian Talent, Michel Tilcan, Mozart Symphony No. 1. Thank you. See you next time. Thank you.